0: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network, of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Each month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in Genocide Studies. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Anton weiss to the show. Anton is senior researcher and head of the research department at the Center for Studies of Holocaust and Religious Minorities in Oslo, Norway. And he's also the editor of several books about mass violence and human rights. Today we'll be talking about two of these, The the Nazi Genocide of the Roma, Reassessment and Commemoration, published by Berghahn Books, and also Racial Science in Hitler's New Europe, published by the University of Nebraska Press. Each book takes seriously the idea that the Eastern European countries and people were agents in their own rights, with their own ideas and their own agendas, which were impacted but not necessarily replaced by those of the Germans. By doing so, they offer a different and valuable lens through which to examine the Holocaust. They're both excellent books, and I'm looking forward to chatting with Anton about them. And we'll do that in just a minute here, parenthetically, I should say. um, It's early in the morning uh, as I'm taping this, and so I'm in my office at the university. And so you may actually, uh, as listeners, hear a goose fly by now and then. uh, So don't be surprised. That's uh, just them waking up. And so with that, Anton, thanks for being with us on New Books and Genocide Studies, and welcome to the show.
1: Hi, and Thank you. It's it's a pleasure to be part of this interview series. I should probably uh, to add that the second book was co-edited with
0: uh, a good colleague oh, of you. mine yeah. from
1: Long, uh, London, uh, Rory Yeoman. So it's uh, kind of a teamwork.
0: Yes, thank you. Uh, my apologies. So, so why don't we start um, by just okay. asking you to say a little bit about yourself by way of introduction and how you came to be... Um, interested in the subject of mass violence?
1: Well, I guess uh, everyone has a story to tell. I have many, uh, and I think it's run sort of in the family, you know, sort of a borderline between Nazi and Soviet atrocities. Uh, originally, I come from Narva, which is in Estonia. Uh, my grandfather, who happened to be a German uh, Jew, immigrated from Germany in 1934, came to the Soviet Union as an idealistic kind of youth. And then during the Great Terror got ten years as a subversive element and a German spy, and ended oh, wow. up nineteen years in the Gulag, where he met my grandmother, who was uh, <laughs> deported from Estonia in nineteen fourteen and got only five years. My father was born outside of a camp territory in Dolinka Karlak, the place you don't want to be really, with the temperatures dipping to minus 40 Celsius in the in the winter, and you know pretty much the same, but in plus during the summer. But then on my other side, on my grandma's side, two of her brothers who stayed in Estonia during Second World War, they were parts of the German-sponsored auxiliary police. And they both ended up, among other things, among other assignments, regarding the Jewish forced labor camps. Actually, one of them stood trial after the war. Uh, and I'm a Sorin. I have his NKVD, actually was already a KGB, investigation file on my desk. So he got five years and some of his... Uh, colleagues or, or co-defendants and some of the witnesses Yeah, they testified that uh, he had some uh, items that previously belonged to the Jewish prisoners he exchanged them except uh, against the food and even my grandmother she remembered how they brought uh, in the winter of 43 44 Jews to work on their farm and they paid them by potatoes you know so it is running and running in the family my hometown which is a beautiful used to be a beautiful Baroque city was bombed to 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 rubble by the Soviet air raids in the March of 1944, and whatever great buildings were standing, medieval castle or churches were happily dynamited by the Germans. So I mean, what I wanted to do really is take a distance and explore these issues from sort of as an academic, from uh, well, professionally really. So I mean, I started as a Holocaust historian, but as I went along. I went to Brandeis University, and it was a pleasure studying with Anthony Polonsky. I kind of mm. uh, expanded my academic horizon and expanded, or sort of expanded, in the field of comparative genocide studies in general. So here at the center in Oslo, I'm basically in charge of everything that has to do with the genocide, including the Holocaust, of course.
0: That's an amazing story. How much, how much did you, did your parents talk about that when you were growing up?
1: Uh, not really much, because sir, you know when I grew up in the late seventies and early eighties was still Soviet Union, so people didn't yeah. talk so much about that and the most amazing thing was when I got interest towards sort of developed interest toward Jewish history, specifically Holocaust, my grandfather was uh, the one who was most amazed because he actually never told us he was uh, Jewish. His identity Uh was political. He was communist. You know, ideology that was the only thing Uh that matters to him. So he was amazed, but I guess later on he kind of also got to accept it. But again, it's probably not so untypical, say, for Eastern Europe, the 20th century, you know, suppressed or Identity. I mean, it's not so uncommon. So now we have huh. quite a few people in Poland, for example, who came off "quote unquote" as Jews. Right? So it does happen.
0: So, I I was reading your bios as as preparing for the interview, and and one of them was from um, when you you spent time at the Holocaust Museum in D.C. and and there it lists that that you did ident- uh, research in six different languages as part of the project you were working on there. Um, and as I wrote you when we were discussing this, my kind of first reaction to that is something along the line of, that's crazy. <laughs> um, so I guess this is a two-part question. Um, first of all, how how did you do that? And then, I guess more broadly, what Holocaust studies for a long time meant speaking German or speaking French or perhaps speaking Russian? How What kind of space, is left for Holocaust scholars who don't speak five or six different languages.
1: Well, uh, I guess it's tough, but from experience, I can tell that for the most part, we have quite significant level of professionalization. Also, when it comes to linguistic, you know, language studies and Holocaust studies, and usually people combine with the area studies. So it depends where you, what you're specifically working on Holocaust in general, you know. Deportation from Romania, for example, or in Poland or Baltic states, mm-hmm. in my case, usually by default, you kind of you know, speak at least two uh, two languages, two local languages. It would be, you know, Latvian and Russian, Polish and Russian, usually Russian as N. And then if you throw it in the mix, you know, German and English and perhaps some rudimentary Yiddish, I mean, you pretty much got it, really.
0: Uh, so in <laughs> you Holocaust, we don't, have so this, we don't
1: have this really problem. Even though, I mean, I can cite examples, for example, Just to to give you one example, there is one good book actually on the Holocaust in Riga, written by two German scholars. But well, it so happened that uh, they speak uh, neither Russian nor Latvian, so they use exclusively Mm -hmm. German sources. And it's a good book. I mean, they got Mm -hmm. their thesis, I think, right. But well, it is a kind of a handicapped. Though, if I may add, where this problem does appear is in comparative genocide studies, which is you know comparative by default Mm -hmm. when someone is comparing. I don't know former Yugoslavia, Pol Pot's Cambodia, or Rwanda, and speaking you know, neither of these languages and using only secondary sources available in English, that's a problem, I would think. But yeah. we don't have this problem in Holocaust studies for the most part, I would argue.
0: Yeah, and it, I think, really reveals the way in which the kind of uh, focus or, or geographic focus of the Holocaust has shifted to Eastern Europe and the, and the old Soviet Union, and, and thus requiring many more languages than we used to when we, we kind of focused on German policy and German interests. Um, so so why, how did these two books that we're discussing today, how did they come about? Why did you decide to put them together?
1: Well, that's a good question. I think it all goes back to my own studies, obviously my own academic interests. And I mean, my PhD, it was 15 years ago, was in a local collaboration in the Holocaust in Estonia. As I mentioned, I come from from uh, from this part mm-hmm. of the world, really. And so, as I was doing research on uh, Holocaust in Estonia, I came across this subject first of all as uh, Roma as a targeted group alongside the Jews. And I got interested. I never, you know, pursued or studied the subject separately before. So I just put this whatever documents I, I found on the Roma in a separate pile, and eventually I came back to it and produced uh, mm-hmm. a separate article, and then kind of uh, left it. For later, and the same with the racial science, because obviously the issue of race come in whatever, uh, you know, whatever focus within the study of the Holocaust or uh, historians take, really. Uh, so that was quite natural, came quite natural, and then also this two subject that. Uh, you know, as for scholars that you don't want to pursue it probably, you know, as a full time, but you're interested in the subject and you also know other people who work in the field and you want to set up, you know, your own case, put it in a context. And so you organize academic conferences, for example. And that's what mm-hmm. I did. I mean, I organized conference on Nazi persecution of the Roma Hurricane at Center, I attended other conferences, and then solicited extra. Uh, contribution from other uh, scholars in the field, and so that's how this book came about and pretty much the same s- stands for the other book so it's really my personal interest, which i didn't pursue sort of uh consistently i would say
0: well let's turn to let's turn to the books specifically and and we'll look at them in some ways one by one but but broadly, I wanted to ask a kind of an umbrella question at the beginning because each of these volumes is is organized in the same way it's a series of essays um addressing the subject in a a national context. And I saw, again, I've I've read an essay of yours talking about the challenges of comparative study of of the Holocaust and genocide. Um, Why did you decide to to look at these as a series of of national case studies? Um, And and what does that reveal about the way uh, you or your co-authors are interpreting what what happened? Well,
1: I think the main reason for that is that whether we deal with the Nazi policy vis a Roma or the, the issue of racial, quote unquote, racial science, we do have a lot of scholarship on that, probably more on racial science than a, a, a Nazi policy of mass murder vis the Roma, but it's mainly focused on Germany. It's really it's kind of uh, central policies how the policy evolved in uh, Nazi Germany, you know, theoretically, how it was applied. And there was was a perception that was kind of sort of universal policy that was superimposed in Eastern Europe, particularly when it comes to racial science. So the idea was really to to look at this issue from a regional perspective and see what are similarities, what are differences. And here, I think when we go, go kind of down certain particular books, particular subject, I mean you can easily identify this kind of cluster, regional clusters, you would say. So obviously German proper, then we have Eastern Europe, specifically you know, occupied Soviet territories, yeah, Soviet territories and Eastern Europe. So the kind of free areas. And of course Western Europe too, but this comes already more probably sort of on the margins, if you will. But it also, again, it's it kind of reflects my own interest. Since I did research on Estonia, I was very interested, you know, what happened to the Roma neighboring Latvia, for example. Does it compare to how the Roma have been treated in Ukraine and other parts of Eastern Europe? So, I mean, that's why I kind of assembled the people who are doing research on the sort of, a, on the national, sort of, based on geographical principle, I would say. So, in a sense, it's kind of coincidental, but also reflects my academic interest. But it's certainly sort of not something that the publisher you know, desired or wished in a sense, because first I finally produced the manuscript and then I submitted for review to the public, you the other way around. So.
0: Well, let's so so I'd like to come back to the kind of the way you started the answer, but but let's look at some of the individual topics first, and let's maybe start with the the book about the Nazi genocide of the Roma. Um, and I suspect among specialists uh, there may be a little lack of clarity about who the Roma are and what the differences between Roma and Gypsy. Um, what the differences between sedentary and itinerant, which are two um, categories you use in the book? Maybe we can start by just asking you to explain those kind of terms.
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, this is a kind of two-pronged question because first is what is sort of a question of self-identification, came on the Roma, and that's kind of a politically correct term. Are used today, and that's how the Roma themselves, for the most part, want to be called. And the second issue, of course, what kind of categories did the, the, the Nazis used. And obviously, they use yeah. different questions. So they talk about the Gypsies, basically, again, mm-hmm. which is corrupt of uh, 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 Egyptian, uh, right? So uh, in scholarship too, some of the scholars, established scholars, for example, Mikhail Zimmermann, unfortunately, has passed away, were probably the the biggest authority on Nazi policy vis-a-vis the Roma he used the word you know there's no problem, really. So it's not anything pejorative, when it comes kind of from within the academic community. But as I said, for the Roma themselves, particularly if they come from the different linguistic um, uh, sort of um, areas, for example, because in Eastern Europe, the word uh, tsigurna, I mean, the gypsy, that's the only word that is used with regard to this particular group. So obviously, even the Roma who live, well, say, in Poland or somewhere in Ukraine, or in Russia, I mean, they simply use this word for for the lack of any better, really. Mm. But otherwise, within sort of broader Romani communities around the world, in Europe, also in the United States, although it's just a marginal marginal group, as we know, I mean, there is a general consensus that the Roma, that's probably an acceptable term. In, in Germany, though, they use also "Sinti and Roma," it's kind of you know more kind of ingenious. Uh, uh, portion of the Romani population and uh, Roma mm. referring to to the group that kind of moved to nowadays Germany at the latest stage mm. from uh, Eastern, Eastern Europe. But I would, I would argue that still uh, if we deal with it academically it's quite okay probably to use the word gypsy particularly if you're dealing with the German policies even though you can say of course why would you take you know the ideas that Germans develop about the Roma as a kind of a starting point right so so basically, a preferable term probably to use Roma, and I should probably also add that I kind of changed my mind on this subject too, because my uh, first piece of research on this subject, with appearance in the Holocaust and Genesis studies in 2003, again, unsurprisingly deal- dealing with the Nazi policy vis-a-vis Roma in Estonia, it has the word gypsy in it. So that's and again, I mean, I'm coming from Eastern Europe, so there was nothing pejorative about using this word. But hmm. later on, I was kind of... Convinced that probably it's not the right, I mean, I would draw parallel to African Americans in the u s right yeah. so this is the term usually used, and I mean well back in the days, there were different words used, but in community there is a sense that this is probably the the most you know the best term of what we have now, and so the same stands for the Roma, I would say, but also in the volume, if you notice some of the authors use the word Roma, some of them use the word gypsy, but it doesn't reflect them, of course any personal sort of attitude towards the 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 group per se really it's uh, kind of grounded in a Nazi Nazi view so of the Roma and how they they situated within the analysis.
0: So why then you make a point of of, of um, outlining the book the the suggesting that it took much longer for scholarly research to really pay much attention to the persecution and killing of the Roma. Uh, why was that?
1: Uh, before I. Uh, Start with this question. I just remember that I didn't completely answer the previous <laughs> one. That's the issue of sedentary versus itinerant trauma. And again, this is kind of a superimposed category. By the NAP, you know, who really decided who is sedentary and who is itinerant. And, you know, it was very loosely interpreted in various parts of Europe, devel- uh, d- depending on circumstances, really. I mean, just to give an example, I have a colleague in Great Britain who moved from like uh, eight different universities. You know, it doesn't make him itinerant by any measure of imagination. I mean, not really. So it is kind of random categories that Synapses use and that were interpreted according to the whim of local authorities, something that we we'll probably come back later in the interview. Now, yeah. to your next question why did it take so long to kind of to develop in the bulk of scholarship, academic interest toward the study of? Uh, well, as I argue, not genocide of the Roma, not the persecution of the Roma. Well, I think the main reason is that there is no sort of, inst- there hasn't been institutional support. I mean, well, first of all, Roma is really not very homogeneous communities. or are very split communities. Um, situated in different countries of Europe, and there's no basically state backing them. I mean, we have State of Israel. We have Yad Vashem that has been pursuing this research, I mean, from early on, I think from the 1950s, there's nothing comparable uh, concerning the Roma. Simply, there's no one who's speaking on their behalf. Now we do have it, particularly in Germany, uh, the German Council for the Sinti Roma, the, which uh, operates, I think, wonderful documentation center from Heidelberg. So there are now interests, I mean, the yeah, Holocaust Memorial Museum, are doing a great job. There was a big conference on the Nazi persecution of the Roma, in September of the last year, for example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, also, if you look, I mean, you, you look me up uh, among the fellows of the Holocaust Memorial Museum, and I was there in 2003. And for example, if, if you look at the profiles of, of fellows in the late 90s and early 2000s, it's barely anyone who would do research on the uh, on the subject now. If you look. Almost every year, there will be one or two young scholars who really pursue this research, and it's really encouraged by the Holocaust Memorial Museum, by the Yad Vashem. So it's really very welcoming to see that interest uh, on the on the part of our academic community and also general public.
0: So you 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 said as part of the answer that that you refer to this as the Nazi genocide of the of the Roma. Um, that's that's. Not a view shared by everybody I know. Why? Why is that? Your, why do you think that's the appropriate way to characterize what happened?
1: Um, discussion has been ongoing. What really happened to the Roma, and can it be compared to what happened to the Jews? I would, I would argue that this kind of uh, this question is uh, posed not quite a sort of a bit of a, fall- a fallacious question in a sense. Yeah. Was the treatment of the Roma different from the treatment of the Jews? Absolutely. There were some similarities. There were also differences. But uh, if we speak in legal terms, really, how to define it, then I think there are certain elements that clearly make it a case of a genocide. For one, the Nazis uh, forcedly sterilized a portion of Roma population. It wasn't many people, in, you know, in relative terms, 2,500 for the whole of Germany. But within the definition or description of a genocide convention. This is enough. There is a clause that says preventing birth within a group that could qualify as genocide. So it doesn't matter. It's two and a half thousand uh, people or it's 25,000 people. That is enough to qualify as a genocide. Also, I would say we should also look at consistency with which the Nazis pursued the destruction of the Roma, as I argue, and that particularly comes to the fore when we look at former Soviet Union, that's probably where we have the most new evidence uh, the areas uh, which is nowadays uh, central Russia, Belarus and particularly Ukraine and there we see how the Nazis basically randomly uh, and also consistently I would say uh, both shot every, every Roma they could uh, put their hands on, whether they were itinerant or sedentary there is a lot of evidence on that also uh, for the other parts of Europe of course, it varies from country to country, say France, but there's no kind of clear evidence that there were any plans, you know, for example, to deport all the Romans, to destroy them. But what is interesting, how the Nazis perceive it, because, I mean, basically it's come, it all comes from, uh, originate from Berlin, from the Nazi authorities, and there was clear indications. I mean, it's, it's written and it's in a document that said, well, it's not really a priority for us, but this question will be solved after the end of the mm-hmm. Second World War. And of course, there are many other questions, but there's a clearly Jews are the priorities, but Roma seems in Roma sort of next on the list, but Nazis are willing to wait here. But there is, if you take it in aggregate, the whole of Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, there is a clear kind of, you see the intent, which is, as we know, very difficult to establish in the court, but, but I think if you look at, at this issue, from a longer perspective, it is possible to establish the elements of intent in the Nazi policy vis-à-vis the Roma.
0: So you pointed out that there were some similarities and some differences between the way that the Nazis um, or, or the Germans treated the, the Roma and the Jews. Could you say a little bit more about what those similarities and differences were?
1: Uh, sure. I mean, uh, uh, the bigger question here, and uh, I think you'll you, uh, get to it later, is yeah. really what the categorization of the Roma where kind of defined in both social and racial terms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jews for the Nazis were defined first and foremost oh, pretty much the only in racial terms. So that was a the difference. The, the pure, uh, quote unquote, uh, you were, when we talk about the Jews for the Nazis, the more dangerous you were. For the Roma, it was the opposite. Uh, there was a certain small proportion that the Nazis defined as a pure Roma, and those were considered a kind of exception to the rule. And those mm-hmm. actually had the larger chances to survive. Whereas those sort of the uh, Roma, use, uh, using the Nazi-lingua, you know, gypsy, tzikinomisch, uh, you know, Roma of a mixed origin, those were the mm-hmm. most dangerous, the most corrupted. Uh, <clears throat> also, we see the consistency that, consistent with regard to the Jews, I mean, that we know, that no matter what happened on the front, to the very end of the war, Nazis just kept deporting the Jews to death camps, in Auschwitz and other in uh, nowadays territory of Poland. We don't see that with regard to the Roma. Most of the shootings, for example, in, not only in the territory of occupied Soviet Union, but also in the countries like Croatia, for example, mm. happened usually uh, basically during the kind of the first part of the Second World War, so 41, 42, when at the at the beginning of a German invasion, really. So uh, as I said earlier. Priority was really killing all the Jews, but Nazis were willing to wait with the Roma. So, And I mean, of course, the difference is kind of uh, going on, really. There is quite quite a few differences, quite a few similarities. But when it comes to intent, as I pointed out earlier, I think we can see clear similarity.
0: So... One of the one of the points, as you said at the, at the beginning, is, is uh, organizing these as national case studies is to get at this issue of, of difference and similarities. Um, so, to what degree is to what degree are policies toward the Roma directed by the German allies or occupiers, depending on which country you're in? To what degree are they directed by forces within each national government?
1: Mm. That's a very good question, and again, this points out to this issue of comparison, you know, with so yeah. the of persecution of the Jews. When it comes to the Roma, I mean, obviously, no matter what, I mean, the order is coming from Berlin. So, you know, if the Germans don't want something, you know, do they say so, so to speak? <laughs> uh, but here, with regard to the Roma, there is a, kind of a lot of leniency as to uh, initiatives coming from, from the below. We, we see particularly with regard to their... German allies, so the Romania and Croatia, that pursue sort of their own course with reg- regardless of the German policies. They have their own plans for their own Romani populations. In case of Romania, they deported them and occupied Soviet territory, the Bessarabia, now just uh, basically nowadays Moldova and the area mm-hmm. of, from Odessa, right? In the case of Croatia, they, they herded them in Jasenovac concentration camp where they were. Uh, uh, essentially all murdered, so there is a kind of different numbers, the range is quite significant, mm-hmm. anywhere between 16 to 40,000 Roma for the whole of Croatia, and we'll come back to the issue of numbers because it's quite essential, mm-hmm. uh, really. So there were a lot of local initiatives dealing with the Roma, and then when we come to the occupied Soviet territories, the the, the perpetrators, really the and the mobile killing units, and also the Wehrmacht, to a certain extent, particularly in central Russia, is one of the uh, chapters in the book uh, argues by Martin Holler. Uh, so there we have, the, the Roma is pretty much at the discretion of the local military and the security police authorities, and then usually they swap, you know, they basically kill as many Jew, uh, Roma, sorry, as they can, so that, that's, that's a tendency. Uh, but as I said, uh, for example, when it, we look at sort of uh, victimization of different groups, for example, in a case of Croatia, where the major, again, target groups were the Jews, the Roma, but also Serbs, mm-hmm. then, uh, uh, for example, Croatian authorities pursued the policy vis-à-vis the Jews throughout the war because the Germans kind of approve of it, but they kind of put it to a halt with regard to to the Serb, for example, because uh, it didn't quite work out for the the Germans. Mm -hmm. They were kind of creating the the chaos, looking from a German perspective. They didn't really will that uh, Ustasha would go to such length and uh, rounding up and killing the Serbian minority. And the Roma, they sort of in between, really. But as other mm-hmm. scholars pointed out, when you look at the issue of intent and consistency and overall numbers, you know, you know the death toll among uh, the Roma, then they certainly were treated almost on the same level as the Jews. But when we talk specifically about uh, Croatia.
0: Yeah, and just, just as a side note, for those who aren't familiar with that, um, he referred to the Ustasha, and that's the, the uh, government of the uh, Croatian state that exists in, in World War II. Um what role do the, or do the, local, uh, the locals play the, the, the perhaps bystanders, perhaps uh, perpetrators, but the kind of ordinary people in these countries who are not making policy? How do they view Roma and how do they view what's being done to the Roma?
1: Well, when it comes to bystanders or ordinary folk, as we know, it's very difficult kind of to generalize, right? Yeah. To gauge the popular opinion. What people really think about the Roma? Not much, probably. And again, here kind of regional differences come into the play. In Germany, from throughout the 30s, because the policies were in place, I mean, kind of police surveillance already throughout the 30s and even in the 20s, right, we're talking about continuity, right, and the break. From the Nazi policies, so there we see I even mean, local bystanders. Well, if you talk, for example, of the local authorities, municipalities, and then also ordinary citizens who clearly don't want Roma being in their neighborhood or you know mm-hmm. their county, you know within the city limits. and What they want, they want basically, they want them out. I mean, they don't necessarily want any harm done to these people, but they want them out of where they live. I mean, it's enough to dump them, you know, outside of the cities. That's how. They ended up with these municipal camps in Germany in 1930s, or they want them to to dump them across the national borders, but they don't necessarily want uh, the Roma dead. Well, uh, as uh, the evidence that emerged from the chapters in the book, for the further east we go, we we'll probably see more sympathy towards the Roma. Although well, there are some also individual calls for that, you know, expel the Roma, but most people are really sympathetic, and that has something to do. And here is also a significant difference. It's been the sort of popular attitude towards the Jews' specific victimization of the Jews, so victimization of the Roma. The Roma were apolitical. You know, we're talking about mm-hmm. the Judeo-Bolshevik myth, right, particularly in the mm-hmm. area that the first experienced Soviet occupation and Nazi occupation, that is the Baltic States, uh, Western Poland, uh, Bessarabia. Uh, so there were Jews in higher echelons of power, there were Jews in the there were Jews in Communist Party. Not as many as it were presumed, but in any case, there were some examples. We don't have any Roma in higher echelons of powers. There's no Roma directors. Mm. They're not working in KVD in prisons. So there's no Roma communists. Well, there were some, say, former Soviet Union, uh, Roma, who were members of the uh, Young Communist League, for example. But anyway, for the most people, they were kind of harmless people. Also, there's kind of a romantic view of the Roma. So basically, when you go on the ground and see what happened, particularly in Ukraine and uh, Russia, and there are some scholars who really did the interviews that we see more sympathy towards Roma than kind of examples of denunciation, really. But mm-hmm. as I said earlier, I mean, it's very difficult otherwise to generalize for the whole yeah. of bystanders, you know. And it's a problematic term to begin with for the whole of Europe to say it's very general, very difficult to
0: generalize. Um, so what happens to the perpetrators after the war? Uh. Well.
1: Uh, we are aware now of all the war crime trials that uh, took place uh, after the Second World War, starting from Nuremberg, and then of course uh, domestic war crime trials. And some atrocities committed in the Roma come through in some of these trials. Infrequently, but they do. But there is no, they don't fall in a particular category. The same as again, if we talk about for Eastern Europe victimization of the Jews, I mean, what we refer to conventionally now as a holocaust, doesn't come through as kind of a separate category, a separate victim group. So we're talking about the Jews. The same uh, stays basically for for the Roma. Uh, There are some perpetrators who are sentenced, um, some of them in absentee, for massacring the Jews, massacring, well, Soviet civilians, but also the Roma. But they never come through as kind of independent category, if you will. So in that sense, it's kind of difficult uh, to get documentary evidence because the evidence is scattered you know, very widely, really. You have to look at many of these war crime trial trials, and for example Holocaust War Museum did an admirable job collecting all this evidence, you know, copying the documents mm. from the former Soviet Union in Eastern Europe. It is available, but it's a very daunting task. You have really to come through a significant amount of archival evidence to get uh, this evidence. So we don't have particular trials deal with the particular atrocities uh, targeting specifically the Roma. It's kind of evidence is scattered, really. And so the perpetrators, I mean, some of them were sentenced, but not specifically on charges of mistreating the Roma. It was kind of parts of the indictment, or part of a sentencing, but it wasn't a central part, so certainly not. Um,
0: and so how is that how, is, how does the genocide, or, or however you want to characterize it, against the Roma, how do people remember that after the war? Has that changed over time?
1: Well, obviously, I mean, it's very different how the genocide of the Roma perceived now, and it was there during the Cold War, but it basically was a non-issue altogether, as you also pointed out earlier in the interview. Now we have, of course, in the central memorial to so the murdered Roma of Europe in Berlin, right? It was unveiled in, in the fall of, uh, when was it, uh, 2012, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. So that was a very significant achievement, kind of, you know, the place where the Roma from all over Europe can come and sort of uh, the, like the flowers. I mean, and the same also in Auschwitz, the place of commemoration. We also see more unveiling sites of commemoration throughout Eastern Europe. There is more awareness now. It's not as significant as with regard to the Jews, again, because there is no sort of central agency you know, standing behind it. Usually it's a local initiative, but uh, mm. comparing uh, with the situation, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago, and there was basically nothing, this is quite yeah. significant. Uh, but still, I would say uh, when you come to Eastern Europe and, you know, scholars working in the field of, you know, working on Nazi atrocities let's say, in say, Second World War, the significant interest, much of scholarship on the Nazi victimization of the Jews, very little on the Roma, really. Mm-hmm. That's why I was very happy to have these two contributions, particularly one by Mikhail Tagli in Kiev, who is doing a really wonderful job. There is a Ukrainian Holocaust the Center for the Study of the Holocaust in Kiev, mm-hmm. who really work with the communities, they engage with the subject, and they publish academically. And so they're really doing wonderful work, but uh, there's not so, so many such individuals and such institutions in the, in the former Soviet Union, I would say. But things are moving really in the right direction, I would argue.
0: Yeah, I would, one of the things, One of my responses to that essay uh, that you referred to with the Ukraine, um, there's, there's a just uh, an enormous number of kind of references to particular massacres, to individual killings, uh, and it reminded me of some of the more recent discussions of the Holocaust by bullets. That as as we've learned more about what happened in Eastern Europe, and I'm I'm wondering, and I, I don't know exactly how to express this, but is there a, a distinction in terms of how you research or or how we think about events, given that that the sub many of the massacres in this book are relatively Small, if you disaggregate them and treat them individually, you're talking about, a, and small is maybe a bad word, but you're talking about a few dozen people, right? And, and kind of, at least in the United States, among my students, they think of the Holocaust and they think of Auschwitz. What, what, is it, what can we say about the Holocaust you know, based on the kind of research that, that the authors in these chapters have done?
1: Well, there are really two questions here. I mean, first yeah. of all, it's kind of symbolic place that Auschwitz occupied and the collective memory, right, is kind of, mm-hmm. uh, because really significant amount of Jews were murdered then in other death camps. But actually, as you mentioned, the Holocaust by Bullet, thats kind of a title of a project and later the book and exhibition by Father Patrice Dubois. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in France, and so he really went to Ukraine and uh, interviewed survivors, and for the most part bystanders, the people who still live in areas where the executions took place. and what he really wants to emphasize, is that well, most of the deaths, particularly in occupied Soviet Union, happened right there on the spot by execution by firing squad. I mean, this uh, this in this case Roma, they never ended up in Auschwitz, really. And if we look at the numbers, well, we have of course the largest number, i say, of what documented deaths did happen in Auschwitz, about Mm. Mm -hmm. Uh, 22,000, those are mainly uh, uh, Roma who were deported from uh, German uh, proper Austria and the protectorate of uh, Bohemia and Moravia. With the people in Eastern Europe, specifically in Croatia, or they also deported from uh, Transnistria, well, those mainly succumbed to diseases, uh, but specifically in occupied Soviet territories, those Roma really were executed on the spot. That's why this issue of individual massacres, really, and since we're talking about relatively small numbers of uh, Roma, as you correctly pointed out, so we also ended up with this kind of individual massacres on a smaller scale. second part of this issue is what kind of sources can be used for that, and then, yeah. and again, as I mentioned, the difficulty is dealing, for example, with the war crime trials proceedings, which is kind of you're looking for in, you know, a needle in a, in a stock of hay. Uh, what, for example, Mikhail Tagley and uh, other author Martin Haller, who work his piece on Central Russia, use extensively. That was a so-called Soviet Extraordinary State Commission that was established uh, during Second World War but the Soviets for the for the matter of collecting evidence of Nazi atrocities with kind of a long perspective, presenting it all at Nuremberg or you know future international tribunal, which end up to be Nuremberg. So this materials are available. It has been available actually throughout the Soviet times, and one of the few that the scholars could uh, get access to, but those of course, not quite reliable materials. Basically, the Soviets, you know, three, four men, commissioned military staff came to the village and interviewed the locals, and they told them, well, there were a few, as you quote, you know, few gypsies, quote-unquote, killed here, killed there, and uh, so we end up with this kind of evidence, but it's uh, not always easy kind of to to uh, to put it side-by-side with side, like, existing German documents that would pinpoint the massacre mm-hmm. in the exact same place, we have statistics. Well, we do have statistics by group and I think to a certain extent it's available, uh, possible but it's still very difficult but yeah I mean in the case of Ukraine that's basically the major source these reports of the Soviet extraordinary commission which should be approached with certain caution but nevertheless should be uh, should be used and I think Mikhail does again quite admirable work in, in his chapter even though as an editor I kind of was a bit skeptical of him overdoing
0: it perhaps but anyway <laughs> so that's already my work as an editor right? so. um. Well, it's probably time to transition a little bit to, to the other book we, we want to talk about, and and maybe the way to do that is to talk about the way in which, in in the book about the Roma, authors the in, authors of the individual chapters, and you as editor, uh, re, uh, identify spaces often where more research is needed. Uh, I don't see that as much in 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 the edited collection about racial science. Uh, why why was Racial science so much, or or was, I guess I should maybe phrase that, was racial science more thoroughly studied before this compilation than than the Roman? If so, why?
1: Uh, sure, it's a very good question. I mean, uh, I think the idea has crystallized pretty early on that the Nazi state is a racial state. So, you know, the primacy mm-hmm. of the race, of the racial drive, uh, we talk about the racial war, war of extermination in the East. So that's why this issue of also racial sciences how it came about, with all the genesis, all the different ideas that Hitler picked up or circulated, all this, the issue of you know experts in the field that that, that working for the Nazi agencies, that was explored already relatively early on. So there is kind of a, the bulk of scholarship, again as I pinpointed at the beginning of the interview, dealing specifically with Nazi Germany, you know, German mm-hmm. proper, really. Here, I think, we do have some research, and I mean, particularly recent, in the national languages, it's kind of, I think, some scholars find it a fascinating subject for research, so we do have this kind of national research, and that's basically what I wanted, what we wanted, with Rory Ammons and Ms. Wallion. Yeah. he was one of the presenters at the conference, actually, so <laughs> anyway, so what we wanted really kind of to put it together and see how their idea of Racial science, uh, you know, whether we use it with with quotation marks or not, was reinterpreted, uh, applied, uh, really in various parts of Europe. And again, the question of, you know, the question of continuity. Uh, with the pre-war period, also the similarities or so differences between different parts of Europe, depending on what kind of, you know, regimes, occupation regimes they have. So that was kind of the premise was behind first the conference and then this volume. But in general, yeah, we do have kind of research on the national level. And of course, I mean, the, the contributors to the volume, I mean, they do speak all the local languages, so that's mm-hmm. a great benefit. And so that's why now we wanted to put it really in one volume.
0: So maybe for for those who aren't familiar with it, can you briefly summarize uh, what exactly racial science is and how does it become acknowledged as a, a, I guess in quotation marks, a science in the decades before the war?
1: Well, that's a bit of a tough question because there are kind of multiple institutions, individuals Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. pursue this subject. There are different terms used. Uh, some of the very inconsistent and there's an overlapping term, so there is no really such one thing you can define. It's, it's not like yeah. mathematics or you know, hard science, it's racial science. And here's the issue that always comes at various conferences, you know, should we use it, as I said, in quotation marks or not? Was it proper yeah. science or not? Mm-hmm. And I think for this volume, we use it without quotation marks because the practitioners in the field thought of it as a science. It was encouraged from uh, from the top, Obviously, it's first and foremost from Nazi Germany as a sign, so we decided, you know, look at it from their perspective, uh, so to say. But otherwise, kind of to draw one line, particularly in a few minutes, for the, for the listeners to understand what it's finding, it wasn't very difficult. There's a certain marker, so the sort of keywords mm. that merged in something that we're referring to as a science. Well, I guess we can start and, well, meet 19th century Europe, and not only in Germany, I mean, in England, and scholars, scholars, and uh, thinkers in other countries, I mean, with Arthur de Gobineau and his essay on the inequality of human race from, uh, well, 53, 55, and, of course, with Charles Darwin, on the origin of species, uh, species by means of natural selection, his idea of the struggle for survival. That's where we usually start with kind of this idea. It's also with the uh, racial antisemitism, but also, of course, the racial science as a whole. Mm-hmm. Then we have the, the term eugenics that was introduced in uh, uh, in England in 1883, uh, which denoted sort of selective breeding, both for promotion of th- uh, favored characteristic and for eradicating features deemed harmful. But we also have kind of a German variation of the same term as a racial hygiene, which is much broader in scope than mm. the English word eugenics and sort of loosely means as a hereditary improvement of a population of all humanity. Mm. Uh, then they also have there's a connection between the uh, eugenics or the racial hygiene, uh, the kind of the German variants, and uh, imperialism. Uh, we talk about you know, early 19th century, late 18th century, uh, where sort of imperialism provided rich material for eugenics which then supplanted sort of scientific legitimation for the domination of the quote-unquote uh, lesser uh, races. Then we could probably uh, throw in between this concept of uh, criminal anthropology or criminal biology mm-hmm. that uh, argued that sort of uh, <coughs> uh, innate race, or oh, innate it's kind of characteristic predisposed certain individuals to commit crimes. So it was more kind of a psychological uh, psychological problem, in, in a sense, <clears throat> but basically all the different strands, and they were throughout the uh, throughout the world. There were different congresses held. Uh, scholars from various countries throughout Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, uh, Western Europe, also United States came to these kind of uh, congresses. They argued uh, the different ideas, but all of this again crystallized after the Nazis came to power, when the Nazis kind of became or started actively promoted what later became a racial scientist, and many of these individuals who didn't necessarily, sort of, actually not at all, subscribe to the Nazi idea of primacy of, you know, Aryan race or approve anyhow of persecution of the Jews, kind of, sort of subscribe to the idea of, um, you, know, you know, specific racial uh, racial features, and also were fascinated with the degree of support that the Nazi state really accorded to so, to the. Uh, to uh, as I said what became a racial scientist so to research in this area but otherwise again coming back to, to what I started saying that I mean it's very kind of difficult to to draw one direct line so that's why we different paths kind of to what we ended up with uh, well, persecution on the racial on the racial grounds uh, particularly after the, the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union when the war of extermination really became not just the theory but the reality
0: your own essay is about Estonia, uh, and, and so I'd like to talk about that just for a few minutes. And so what is the status of racial science in Estonia before the war?
1: Uh, well, I mean, I wouldn't call it racial science. They have uh-huh. a different mm-hmm. sort of uh, like categories. First of all, ethnography, uh, kind of a study of ethnos, uh, right? This again coming from, from German. And then they have physical anthropology. So there are scholars working in this field, nothing to do with the race, in the sense. Uh the idea was, and I think it's very common for most of East European countries after the second world War during the interval period with very kind of uncertain and short lived democracies you know those countries ended up with authoritarian rule was the idea that the countries were kind of vulnerable biologically there there were smaller numbers i mean they they were threatened to be overpowered by the nations such as Russia on one side and Germany on the other, and uh Estonia as a nation. Only came into existence or I would say in the late nineteenth century before that I mean the Estonians I and mean, with Africa themselves the locals, and you know the power was concentrated in the hands first of Russians and then ethnic Germans, so there was always i mean the kind of the feeling that Estonia squeezed between the two giants, you know in how the country can be survived but I think the identification in the case of Estonia, as I argue i mean was basically based on the idea of culture and uh Issue of Mm -hmm. Uh, language—that's very interesting, and that's probably distinguishes Estonia from other uh, East European countries, particularly those that were, you know, first occupied by the Soviets and then the Nazis. Because Estonian language belongs to a Ugric family of languages, and there are about 15 different uh, different national ethnicities that speak sort of not a similar language, but well, linguists were able to identify about 500 common words. Uh, this is Finland and Hungary and Estonia in Europe, but most of them are in Siberia. But, uh, it's, I mean, as I said, it's only linguists can really identify them. I remember the first time traveling to Hungary, Budapest, and uh, <laughs> in, uh, having the idea that, you know, I could actually understand Hungarian <laughs> as I can understand Finnish. There is no way. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was a bumper. But, uh, <clears throat> so Estonia promoted this kind of idea that Estonia can help sort of, you know, perform as a, as a big brother. But of course, at the time, it was mainly Finland. So, I mean, this idea is, you know, where channelled to research, uh, particular anthropometrical research on uh, Estonian uh, nation. Johan uh, who was a considered father of physical anthropology, did significant research in Estonia. Is argued in my chapter, probably Estonia was, you know, anthropometrically when, you know, the 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 uh, checked, you know, how big was the cranium, what was the distance between the eyes and your nose as you probably have seen, uh, some listeners have seen in, in, in his uh, pictures uh, that research the Nazis performed, actually it was more research than probably any other country in Europe, including uh, the Nazi Germany and, for example, Robert Witter, who did research in the Roma. I think there were about, uh, was it 50,000 Estonians who underwent this kind of, you know, uh, research. It's like 5% of the population. It's quite significant. But again, what I want to emphasize, I mean, the idea was not to show that Estonians were a sort of, uh, higher, you know, in the higher stage of development to put down any particular nation, but more like to prove that Estonians actually, you know, are wealthy nations, because in the 19th century, so it went until pretty much 1940, Estonians, for some reason, were considered Mongoloid trade, based mm. on the fact that they spoke, finno Greek language, again, so it was a bit ironic. So Estonians really proved, tried to prove themselves in their own eyes, in the eyes of foreigners, particularly the Germans, so that's why such a kind of, uh, so this, uh, and of institutional basis was there already during interval period? It was uh, highly encouraged by the state. their money was involved, and when the Germans came in, they basically capitalized on this research and the standards that pre-existed in the as,
0: as I say, so did these scientists. Did they see the German, uh, the uh, with the German op- occupation? Obviously, it's, it's a military occupation, but but German uh, scientists and and, and academics. Would seem to share some of their interests. Do the Estonian scientists see this as an opportunity, see the German occupation as something of an opportunity, or do they see feel them threatened by the German researchers, or how does that work?
1: Uh, more opportunities here. You know, Nazis, I mean, again, they performed badly in some parts of Eastern Europe, uh, they performed very well in Estonia. The reason mm-hmm. for that was that they early on recognized that Estonia you Of know, an Estonian race, quote unquote, Estonian nation, standing on pretty high on the racial hierarchy, much higher than the Finns or so Latvians, Lithuanians, not to mention Russians or the Jews or the Roma, for example. So they kind of, according to Estonians, relatively high position in what we refer to, and uh, it's also the title of the book, as a Hitler's New Europe, because Hitler finally yeah. was the first who started talking about the New Europe. It's not really the European <laughs> Union, so, uh, ironically. So Estonia's really capitalized on that, but again, the idea was kind of to prove that Estonians were uh, standing on, on the same level with the Germans, so that later on, you know, they could get, you know, larger autonomy in the New in the new Europe, essentially. So they kind of they took advantage of... Uh, what was happening in Germany, and the Germans, for their part, you know, treated Estonians relatively sort of, were more, you know, not, not so harshly as other nations, and that's applied even compared to the Baltic states. Really, so it's kind of a give and take. Uh, give-and-take relationship. So the Germans were very happy with they collaborated, and the collaborators were very happy with the resources that they got from the government. So we have uh, Institute for uh, Racial Anthropology established at Tartu University in the fall of mm. 1943. It's quite significant. I mean, the uh, uh, irony is, of course, that Estonia is an occupied country, right? It's clearly as much lower status as the Germans, and yet the Estonians kind of pursue and continue with their research on other groups than themselves. Mm. I mean, there's uh, numerous anecdotes. I mean, for example, uh, there the camp for the Soviet prisoners of war near Tartu, Tartu University itself. It's the biggest, you know, the west established Estonian university. And then the the dean of university asked a poor German officer, "Well, can you please segregate among the prisoners those who belong to U Greek minority, so we want to study them?" Or, for example, Alfred Rosenberg, who was a vice minister for the Ostland, area that comprise baltic states and part of belarusia belarusia administratively they visit Estonian National Museum. I talked earlier about uh, ethnography and the significance in Estonia, and they look at uh, you know the mannequins and well everything is fine except you know facial features. They look a bit of like East Baltic racial type, but this can be easily fixed. You know, just change the mannequins. Everything else is fine. So I mean, you see, they were kind of satisfied with the substance, with the content. It's just the form that needs to be polished a bit to fit the, the design. And from German perspective, really Himmler started spell it out already in 1940. I mean, this is basically divide and rule policy, right? You want to split mm-hmm. the occupied territory as as many parts as possible. And Estonian scientists, in that respect, doing their bidding, basically, without realizing that that's kind of a tragedy, really. So they're thinking that they're performing on behalf of the nation, but actually they're contributing towards their overall Nazi racial designs.
0: So what happens to the Estonian scientists after the war?
1: Oh, well, another uh, good question. Uh, well, First of all, scientists—I mean the efforts—and in plural, in general, yeah. for Estonia and other countries, we, it's not really so many individuals we're talking about. You know, in some cases, mm-hmm. the bigger countries, Romania, Hungary, maybe a dozen, you know, under dozen. In Estonia, we're doing, you know, two or three individuals who acquire very high status during hmm. Nazi occupation, but basically just a few people. And Johan Al, that's the individual I talk in my chapter, who was the, the, the director of a racial studies uh, program at Art University. Who went to Russia I mean, to occupy the Soviet Union in Leningrad Oblast, where really, again, studied, did anthropometrical studies on the local Finno Greek population, who later was uh, kind of trans, uh, uh, transferred to Estonia mm-hmm. as a kin- kindred nation. So he basically continued his work. And before he kind of bent in the physical anthropology and racial science, he was basically dealing with. A, He worked at uh, the Institute of Zoology, so he worked there, and he, until now, considered, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, kind of godfather of physical anthropology in Estonia. So he continued his job, and he published a lot, but uh, (laughs) it's quite ironic because I came across uh, his bibliography, which is about 40 pages, but it omits Mm. what he published between 1941 (laughs) and 1944, kind of coincidentally. And I found a reference to his works where he studied uh, ethnic Russians in Estonia and uh, also intended to study Latvians, you know, another occupied nation, and, you know, describe them, your kind of preliminary findings, uh, describing this to peoples in not very flattering terms, I would say, which really worked very well with the Nazis. So, anyway, but actually he was demoted at his position, I think, for a while, but not for anything that he'd done during Second World War. I don't know if it never came up, although he was very prominent during Nazi occupation, but because. Uh, I don't quite recall, but, uh, you know, in Soviet history, Lysenko, who also advanced kind of uh, pseudoscience the science of the Second World War, something to do with the crop productivity, was basically pseudoscience, the and he was later kind of exposed as a charlatan. I don't remember if All uh, actually supported his position, and when uh, Lysenko fell down, he also kind of got a beating all the other way around. But anyway, he was kind of demoted on these grounds, but not on, the, on whatever he was doing during Second World War. So for the most part, and I think it's true for Germany and Austria, these people who are scholars, they continue in their professions. And, and of course, it's also mm-hmm. an issue of ethics, you know, I mean, some of them, as uh, mm-hmm. for example, the chapter in, in Austria, in, in, in a volume, uh, the contributors talk about that they, they use the results, kind of the findings that, that they accumulated by not ethical means during Second World War and they post-war research. So that's quite kind of painful uh, thing to remember, really.
0: So I'm really struck by, by the point you make about the numbers of people you're talking about. How, how important are their ideas and their research to governmental policies? In other words, to what degree do these ideas get translated into actions on the ground?
1: Yeah, that, that's a very important question. Our, you see, I mean, before that, and you asked me earlier, right, how the racial science came about in the mm-hmm. 1920s and 1930s, I mean, they had the ideas here. You know, they went to the conference, they had the papers, they they published articles in scientific journals, most of them in Germany, actually, because Germany was a kind of a center mm-hmm. for this research even before the Nazis came to power. Uh, but that was kind of academic study but there were always within this kind of eugenic community, physical anthropology community there was a sense that this is sort of of applied science you know, this is a practical knowledge that should be implemented and some parts of it were implemented in the face of uh, laws on sterilization for example, Uh, again something to do with the habitual criminals and, uh, and so far and so on, so now there was an opportunity there was something that was active policy pursued from the top because the ideas can now be sort of actively and immediately implemented. And as I, I just mentioned, earlier, you in the case of Estonia, he went on assignment to the Russia proper to do his research. You know, that was quite significant. He couldn't do it before because it was a different country, right? And the borders were sealed. I mean, Estonia's small nation. It was nothing of the kind. Now he gets the chance to do that. So that was quite significant for, for these individuals that the, the ideas could be, Quickly and effectively implemented, at least to, to a certain extent. In terms of how much these ideas were were kind of well known, or supported, or uh, rejected by the general population, but difficult to say because, as I said, it's a very small group, and they kind of act with the third, uh, sort of directly on the uh, on a level of sort of policy making, but not that. They publish you know articles or uh, in the general press. I mean they do, but it's kind of more of a generic you know talk about the greatness or you know Romanian nation or Latvian nation and so on and so on. But uh, there is not really public discussion on that very, very so, so much. At least not in the areas directly occupied by the Germans, because, finally, as I emphasized on several occasions, you know, everything is controlled by 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 the Germans. There is not so much public discussion on that. But these people mm-hmm. do have very significant uh, status, here, sort of within the German administrations and also the scholarly community, the other scholarly community, whatever you call it.
0: Well, there's an enormous wealth of material information in this book. It's really a terrific book, and I I encourage the listeners to uh, get their hands on it and and to read it. We don't have anywhere near the time needed to cover it in depth. So maybe I'll just conclude by asking you a few kind of broader comparative questions. And and to start with, um, are there patterns, are there kind of commonalities um, in the ways in which German racial science scientists and and racial scientific institutions interacted with those race scientists and institutions at the local or national level
1: oh uh, yes, obviously, as again as I said I mean everything basically came for from Germany Germans were in control if something kind of you know anyone crossed the lines i mean he was he i mean usually he and you know, she quickly you know showed her his place. Really. Sure. So, again, mean, the, these scholars they didn't have much of a leeway, but they really they uh, functioned with their, all these ideas within the framework of Nazi occupation. If it was beneficial for the Nazis, and as we argue in the volume it was, then they were let do what they were doing and actually were giving you know, financial and institutional support. Uh, but they couldn't really act on their own. Again, I mean, it's probably a bit different in countries like Romania, Hungary. Or Ustasha Croatia that were German allies, and of course sorry, they have more control over their own affairs, but again only to an extent, as we know. Uh, so in that sense, there is a lot, a lot of similarities. I mean, particularly within Eastern Europe, because after all, you know, if you look at all the chapters in the volume, that's probably our focus. real or East Central mm-hmm. Europe, that that's the term mm-hmm. nowadays used. So. Uh, so in that sense, uh, yeah, we have a lot of commonalities, but obviously all the scholars they have they kind of. Uh, their own agendas. But, yeah. I mean, there is this common line, and this agenda is basically was revitalization, regenera- uh, regeneration of the nation. Something that we know very well, not specifically with the context of racial science, but we should France, right, the support of the local people for the regime of petton right? who said, well, I mean, mm-hmm. I want to go back to the kind of really original, you know, French values. And so well, it was true also for all of these European countries, who so had this kind of the... the Disenchantment with a democracy, and then on top of that, particularly with the occupied, uh, you know, Baltic states, I mean, the Soviet deportation, the sense that your nation was on a, kind of on the brink of extinction. And so the racial science kind of offered this way out, really, the way to originalization back to. You know, back back to ancient history. Uh, you know, the greatness when Estonians were the great nation, which mm. of course never happened before. Well, <laughs> so that's the ideas they try to inculcate. Then, and, and in general, it was very successful symbiosis between the well, the Nazi central authorities, local Nazi, well, Nazi German occupation authorities, and kind of the local uh, local uh, well, civil authorities and also the scientific
0: community. So the second question. Uh, the broad question then. Um and, and I'd ad, like to ask us about both of the books um, together or maybe separately. And that is, um, so, so we've got this much more intentional and kind of intensive study on a national level, um, bringing together these national scholars that you talked about. Um, do, do the kind of aggregate, do the conclusions uh, of all of these people kind of looked at together, do they change the way we should Interpret or understand the broader course of Nazi policy or the broader course of the Holocaust?
1: Uh, probably not so much for for the Holocaust, really, mm-hmm. because uh, I guess we're, I mean all the main thesis are already there. There has been you know discussed, and we we do have very good kind of uh, understanding what was really going on with the genesis genesis of the Final Solution. Uh, When it comes to, for for example, Roma, yes, I would argue that uh, there was more of a degree of uniformity applied by the Nazis throughout Eastern Europe, despite uh, the the kind of divergence, uh, local divergences and dissimilarities. But yes, it's possible to establish kind of a common pattern how the Nazis treated the Roma and how also quite important how they intended to treat them in the future. Really, when it comes to uh, racial science, I think... uh, uh, here, the main issue is really, how much local initiative was there, and how much yeah. a sort of there were there was sort of consensus between the local they'll call it collaboration governments and the central authorities. This was one issue because also we talk about you know civil resistance in all these countries in Estonia latvia you know whatever but when it came to the idea of race, there was certain again understanding developed, and that was because actually this idea circulated in on all these countries on the European continent actually before Nazis mm-hmm. came came to power, they basically they radicalized it, you know, and but they, basically they capitalized on existing trends in the society. And they did it better in some countries than in others. But in generally, in the end, it all worked for the benefit of the Nazis. So I mean that was of course the folly scholars like Johann Ao to think that, you know, whatever they're doing was for eventually, you know, for the benefit, the you know, long-term benefit of the Estonian nation. Obviously, it wasn't. And again, we can only speculate what would have happened with Estonians you know, if the Germans win the war, you know, we have many of these books, right? What, what would happen if Hitler you know, conquered Moscow in 1941? In a sense, but most likely, you know, Estonians would be used as a middleman, or Norwegians, for that matter. You know, kind of would be considered higher than you know local Russians or Ukrainians, but still would be in subservient uh, position, obviously. Mm-hmm. So no matter what, uh, individual scholars like all uh, uh, kind of sought, that they could never could have achieved the Hitler's New era, But again, that's just a speculation. Mm.
0: Well, we've taken a lot of your time, and I very much appreciate it, Uh, and so I'd just like to conclude the interview with a couple um, quick questions that that I ask most or all of my guests. And the first is um, to ask you to suggest one or two books, or I suppose it might be a movie or something else, uh, on the subject of the Holocaust or genocide, something that you've read or are reading or that you've watched that you found particularly meaningful or interesting or new um, that you can recommend to the listeners.
1: Uh, sure, absolutely. Uh, not so much the films. So I have two, two-year-old 2 twins at home, so we don't watch many movies <laughs> nowadays. But the books, yes, in the quiet of my office. And uh, at the moment, I have actually two on my desks, which I happily uh, recommend to the, mm-hmm. the listeners. Both of them were published in 2013. Uh, the first one I'll say a few words about is uh, Mark Lewis, uh, The Birth of the New Justice, The Internationalization of Crime and Punishment, 1919-1950, published by Oxford University Press. Uh, I crossed with uh, Mark Lewis at one of our conferences, and uh, I think very highly of his research. The book is basically, as the title suggests, uh, about kind of how the idea of universal justice came about. But he kind of um, departs from kind of universalistic idea that, you know, it's all started with, with the Paris Peace Conference in 1919 in the League of Nations, it came the United Nations, the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Geneva Convention already from early on, Genocide Convention, and, and so we ended up with the Universal uh, of, uh, uh, International Criminal Courts and uh, uh, International Tribunals for Rwanda and the uh, former Yugoslavia, so kind of a linear interpretation What what he's arguing about and I think he is mainly focusing on the uh, interval period that how kind of uh, uh how the how many different paths were there with different ideas were were really kind of aired so it wasn't really linear progress towards international justice He also kind of uh i mean for example I mean, now with a lot of you know books and talk about raphael Lemkin right he also kind of acquired almost symbolic uh, sort, of, sort of iconic status, I would say, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As or someone who uh, proposed the term genocide. But actually, Lewis argued that well, Lemkin actually borrowed or adopted ideas of others. So he wasn't really sure. working in isolation. He specifically talked about the Romanian scholar Vespasian Pella giving him his dues as a kind of someone with whom Lemkin really worked together. But who was the first to, uh, to introduce the idea of codification of international law? Uh, you know, the convention, uh, of, sort of anti-terrorism convention of 1937, from where actually Lemkin's ideas of the crime against, uh, barbarity and the crime of vandalism came about. Mm-hmm. Really, he was really responding to this call as, you know, what really constitutes the crime of terrorism. So it really kind of broadened our scope, and he's also a historian, so he's not a legal scholar, so it's a very good read. He uses huh. new sources outside of kind of very commonly used UN documents, largely available. But he actually went to the, you know, the League of Nations archives in Geneva. He been to the Red Cross archives also in Geneva. So it's really new information here. Good read. And really gives you kind of uh, new perspective on well, on the birth of the new justice. Huh. So this is one book, and the second one, uh, very different book, but uh, probably. I would say one of the best in uh i say last half is half a decade uh, that has been written in the comparative genocide studies. This is Gary Bass, The Blood Telegram, Nixon, Kissinger hmm. and Forgotten Genocide. Uh yeah, it's I think uh, Alfred Knopf, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yes it is, two thousand thirteen, very fake book. Uh well uh what he does he really look in great details on sort of American inaction in the face of what some scholars argue was a genocide in bangladesh in 1971 per but, by but what he does again he this is not anything closer to a kind of emotional approach or moralistic approach like you know americans didn't do enough uh, right but he really look at the at the documents he he uh, he using the the, uh, the 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 tapes of a uh, uh, conversation between nixon and kissinger some other sources in indian particularly in U.S. archives, and again, I emphasize that it's very difficult to get to kind of the sources, particularly documents that are kind of produced by Kissinger because mm. there is a lot of red tape there. But it's very, very nuanced, very well-written book, and of course, I mean, Gary Bass is known for his early works yeah. on uh, inter- humanitarian intervention and international law. He also works as a journalist, so again, I think mean, he writes very well, very good style, but it 's like a wealth of information in this book it's very very good very poignant analysis, tons of news sources, one hundred and fifty pages of footnotes that uh, <laughs> works uh, good for me as a historian, you know for general readers, but anyway, very well documented studies and again, I mean i don 't really know. If Gary Bass considering himself a genocide scholar. Yeah. And I mean, this issue of genocide is not really so central of it but it's in, a, uh, in, a, <clears throat> in the title of the book, obviously. But it's very good to read, and I highly recommend this, this book to anyone who wants to know about what happened in Bangladesh, but also an American reaction. I mean, apropos, uh, of course, the famous Samantha, Bo- Samantha Powers book, who doesn't actually yeah. deal with Bangladesh, so it's also fill in the gap. So, I mean, uh, I hope to to listen to uh the podcast with gary boss probably a new interview series sometime in the future
0: that would be wonderful and i will say i'm taking students to europe here not in in a couple of weeks um probably about the time this gets posted and uh, that means i will have several very long plane rides and train rides um, and i'll take these books along with me and read them but the last question then is um what are you working on now
1: Alright, this is a big project which I kind of semi finished. Uh that's a very, uh project I've been working on for many, many years. Spent at least three years writing it up. This is on the Soviet Union and Genocide Convention within the cons- mm-hmm. uh, within the context of the Cold War. Uh here I really like Gary Bas did in the case of Bangladesh, I looked specifically kind of for nitty-gritty political behind the scenes of what was really happening. 1946, 48 at the United Nations, you know, all the negotiations around the Genocide Convention. And basically, looking, and my question is, you know, why we ended up with the convention as it is. I mean, uh, the, yeah. it's not very kind of functional instrument of international law. There is a, uh, and that happened because, of course, of political interest by the major players, uh, which were obviously the Soviet Union, the uh, United States, and also Great Britain. And then that convention was adopted in the early year of the Cold War and it kind of clearly reflects in the wording of a convention. But I take it much further really and all the way until the dissolution of the Soviet Union and see how the United States and Soviet Union, all based on primary sources from the uh, Russian and American archives, really approach the issue of genocide because uh, as you well know, and some readers know, the United States mm-hmm. only ratified in 1988. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the big question, you know, again, why did it take so long? Well, what kind of interest mm-hmm. were at stake? And uh, because uh, it did take only 1988, so we have very significant paper trail uh,
0: mm-hmm. in
1: the uh, United States. Some of the materials are declassified in the State Department until pretty much, I think, '78 or so. So the uh, sources are available, not so much for the Soviet Union. I mean, altogether, it's now, it's Oh, very difficult and work uh, the Russian archives I did my research in 2012. I was very happy about that because I would be able to do it now. Uh, and, uh, and in England, too. I mean, the uh, United Kingdom ratified in 1970, so we have very extensive kind of documentation, a paper trail up to this year in the National Archives at Kew Garden in London. Good place to take your students to. Uh, so this is now ready as a manuscript. Uh, now it's with the publisher, and see what I have to say. But uh, yes, it's a bit of a... Long manuscripts or a lot of cutting to do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, once it's done and it's out, uh, I look forward to reading it, and I hope uh, I hope you'll come back on the show and talk about it with us.
1: Well, oh, thank you. It's absolutely a pleasure, and uh, I always, uh, appreciate this opportunity to talk about these two books now on the show. So thank you for having me.
0: Yes, they're wonderful books. So thanks again, um, and uh, take care. Yeah, thank you. All right, bye bye. You've been listening to an interview with Anton Weissbent about two of his edited volumes, The Nazi Genocide of the Roma, Reassessment and Commemoration, and Racial Science in Hitler's New Europe, 1938-1945, to 1945, which he co-edited with Rory Yeomans. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes, or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I'll start a summer-long series of interviews about the camps and ghettos in World War II with Jeff McGargie, the general editor of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's Encyclopedia of Camps and Ghettos. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.